you all very much. Well, if you could take your Bibles and join me in the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 19 today, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I don't know if you have picked up on the fact there is not much that we agree on these days as citizens of the United States of America. Poll after poll shows, you know, increased polarization on just about any topic. You could pretty much put a post up on Twitter or Facebook saying the sky is blue and somebody would come along and, and, and criticize that and be like, well, why do you hate clouds so much, right? Like, the, the polarization is crazy, but there is one thing that Americans very much agree on, no matter where they are on the political spectrum. Here's something that poll after poll shows. We don't like our leaders, any of them. Uh, I don't know if you've looked at congressional approval ratings lately. And by the way, this is not anything new for the year 2022. Congress has always ranked somewhere above or below root canals, right, on like approval ratings of people, things that people like. Uh, really, any branch of government, any branch of government, approval ratings are just really low. We don't have much trust these days, uh, not much affection these days for the leaders that God has given us. By the way, that's not new. History is absolutely chock full of lousy kings and useless congresses and people who weren't super impressed with those kings or those congresses. A new king comes to the throne, a new congress comes to power. And they promise to be different than the last one, right? We're not going to be like those, those bozos we just voted out. And given enough time, history continues to repeat itself. It doesn't matter who the king is, who the president is, who the prime minister is, who the congress is, who the emperor is. At any point in human history, all human leaders disappoint, right? What we're experiencing is not really anything new. Sometimes it's due to impossible promises, Right, we're going to make everybody's wildest dreams come true, and it's going to be amazing. There's going to be a chicken in every pot. It's going to be great. And then they you know, can't deliver on those promises. Other times it's due to just cynical hypocrisy, people, leaders promising things they have no intention of doing, just to get into power, to gain popularity. Other times it's due to outright corruption, tyranny, abuse of authority. And this is true in all kinds of leadership, all kinds of authority in our world today. I know it's super easy to just sort of hurl rocks at Congress, but I think many here in this room have experienced in a very tangible way bad authority, abusive authority, misused authority. We've all witnessed it. So much so that many people in our world today begin to believe that even the concept of authority itself is suspect. Think about this, if if all the people you've ever had in authority in your life and leadership over you have been bullies, have been corrupt, have been selfish, you begin to think, you know what, get rid of it all. All authority is bad. Maybe it's an angry spouse that you have experienced. Maybe it was a parent growing up who was just impossible to please and never said a word of, of praise in your direction. Maybe it was a a teacher who had it out for you in in middle school. Or corrupt politicians you hear about in the news. Or even a pastor who was spiritually abusive. Listen, it happens. Pastors who think that they're God's gift to mankind and it's my way or the highway. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that, where the pastor has used his, his shepherd's staff to beat rather than to guide. We read in the news about lavish greed and about opulence that is enjoyed at the expense of others. We witness bullying and cruelty and abuse. And listen, we naturally and rightly recoil at at those sort of things that happen by those in authority. We rightly want to see leaders who are held to account, and we long deeply for a true and a good and a righteous leader. We think maybe just the next election or the next person will be the answer to our longings. Let me submit to you the very fact that we long for truly good authority. And the very fact that we never find it anywhere in this world, in any political party or any political system, tells me that there is such a thing as true and righteous and good authority, but it's not going to be found in this world. It's going to be found in one and only one place, and it's going to be found in the authority of King Jesus. You see, King Jesus, unlike any human king or any human ruler, 
He is good, and he is perfect, and he is righteous, and he is just, and he is sovereign, and he is true, and he never lies. True authority, true kingship is found in the person of Jesus. He is the measure of true kingship. He is the one to which all good leaders aspire to be like. He's the hope of all mankind. So we come here to Luke chapter 19. We come to the account today of the, what's known as the triumphal entry. Jesus being acclaimed and recognized as the true king of Israel. And, of course, the people didn't really understand all that his kingship entailed, that he came to be a servant king, to be a king who would offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross. But here we get a portrait of the true and the better kingship of Jesus. You read the Old Testament, and you're like, and David was a pretty good king, but until he wasn't, until he misused his authority to take another man's wife and to have that individual murdered and to cover up the crime. You're like, Solomon, he's going to be a good guy until his heart turns away from God through all the wives that he has. And then you read all about all the kings in First and Second Kings, and it's just tragedy after tragedy until the kingship itself is extinguished and the nation goes into exile. And then we come to the New Testament. Here comes Jesus being presented as the king of the Jews as the one who is in the, in the line of David, who's being presented as the king of Israel. And that is the, t- the theme here as we come to Jesus entering Jerusalem, this notion of him being king of Israel, the one who fulfills the promise to David. So follow along as we read Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. We're coming to the end of the journey, coming to the, the terminus of the journey. By the way, he had just spoken about what? A, a parable about a king who goes away to get his kingly authority to come back and to reign. And it came, pa- came to pass when he was come nigh unto Bethphage and Bethany. At the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never sat man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do ye loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. Or he could render it, because his Lord has need. They that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he said unto them, he answered and said unto them, I tell you, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city And wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they're hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee about, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even to the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation." Here we get this portrait of Jesus as the true and better king, the, real, the, the, the essence of what true kingship looks like. So what is it about Jesus that makes him that true and better king, that makes him the one that we should be longing for? Well, let's walk through this. First off, I want you to notice his plan. Notice that the true king, Jesus, fulfills God's plans. He's not like the politician who comes along and promises you the moon and then delivers nothing. He has the ability to carry out his promises. He makes promises and he keeps promises. What's going on here at the early part of the passage is he is deliberately and intentionally fulfilling prophecy. Ryan read earlier in the service, Zechariah 9, about the king coming. He's coming on a donkey. And here comes Jesus doing just that, fulfilling this prophecy made 500 years before. The true king fulfills God's plan. Now, I want to just draw your attention to a couple of items here. Verse 28 said, when he had thus spoken... And the thus spoken is just hinted at the fact that he's going to be hated by his subjects. The thing that he has just thus spoken is hinting at the fact that he's going to leave for a while. It's hinting at the fact that he's going to be rejected and that he's going to die. 
And it says, and he went before. Here he is heading up to Jerusalem at Passover for his own death. This is called the triumphal entry, but it could also be called as a death march. Jesus is taking step after step, full, knowing full well what will happen at Jerusalem. He said as much. Back in Luke 9.31 on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says he's talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus. That's the Greek word. The exodus that's going to happen at Jerusalem, that he's going to depart, that he's going to die. Over and over again, as he has taken the journey to Jerusalem from Luke 9 to Luke 19, he said, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. Jerusalem for Jesus is not about enthronement in the palace, but it is about death on the cross. All of that is wrapped up with him going on before And here he is leading the way. He's not being dragged against his will, but he is leading. He's going as the sovereign king, fully in control of his own fate. He's king. He's got a plan, and he is working and fulfilling the plan. And that plan is a saving plan. It is a plan that results in him not on a throne, but on a cross. Not in the palace, but at Golgotha. Jesus enters Jerusalem as a king. He's being acclaimed as king. Everything about this says king, right? The the pronouncement from Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The other accounts talk about they're waving the palm branches. All of this is saying king, 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 but not the kind of king that we're used to. Not the kind of king who selfishly builds wealth for himself. Not the kind of king who uses his authority for his own benefit. Jesus is an entirely different type of king. The kind of king... Instead of saying, go lay down your life for my glory, he says, I'll lay down my life for your good. That is an entirely different idea of authority. By the way, that is a model of what good human authority should be. Good human authority should always and only be exercised on behalf of the people under you. Not so people can do things for you, but so you can do things for them. That's true authority. That's true servant leadership. He's not like the immoral Herods that everybody knew about. Wickedly, horribly immoral, their family tree is like a knot because they're marrying nephews and nieces and half-sisters. He's not like the immoral Herods. He's not like the violent Caesars. He's not an egomaniac like Napoleon or an insatiable conqueror like Alexander. He's a king who lays down his life on the field of battle for his people. So he's in charge here. He's fulfilling God's saving plan, one that involves his own death on the cross. But verse 29, he shows to us that he is sovereign. Unlike other human rulers who can't take into account all the contingencies, Jesus has perfect and total knowledge of the future. He can tell the disciples, okay, go into that village. There's going to be a donkey right there as you enter, and it's tied up. I want you to go get him, and this is what people are going to say. This is what you'll say in return. And notice verse 30, uh, let's see, 32. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. Now, I don't think this is because Jesus set this all up very carefully the night before to be like, hey, could you leave the donkey out? And these guys are like a big stage play. No, this is because he is God in the flesh and he has perfect, complete knowledge of the future. Jesus is not just making an educated guess like, well, there's normally a donkey there. No, he knows this infallibly. infallibly. The future is not open to where, well, it could be this or it could be that. The future is written in advance by God. And he is the king in control of time itself. So as he approaches Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, this is the Sunday before his death on the cross that will come on Friday and his resurrection one week later, he comes to this little village called Bethany. Bethany Bethany and Bethphage, they're about two miles from Jerusalem. They're just on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem. It's a ridge about 300 feet high. There's the Kidron Valley, which is very deep between the Mount of Olives and then the city of Jerusalem. It's the famous picture. If you Google a picture of Jerusalem, you're probably getting a picture of the Temple Mount taken from the Mount of Olives. So don't think Everest. This is not like a snow-capped peak. This is, this is more like, like a hill. But I guess from Alabama, this would be a mountain because we're just pancake flat around here. Here he comes to the Mount of Olives. Bethany, we know about that town. That's where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. It's where Jesus really set up camp during the Passion Week. He stayed there with them. By the way, in just weeks prior to this, he's raised Lazarus from the dead, which that probably tells us why there's so much acclamation and people being like, hey, if this guy can raise people from the dead, he'd be a really awesome general to have into battle, right? That would be an an undefeatable army if you could just be like, soldiers, raise them. They're thinking, conquering king, we want him on our side. 
Bethphage, we don't know exactly where that is, but it's, it's very close by, just little villages on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Jesus is fully in charge here. That's what I want us to get. This king is fulfilling God's plan. This is not just his own plan on a whim, but he's fulfilling this plan that God had laid down from before the foundation of the world to save mankind. Now, his perfect knowledge, just think about this for a minute. Jesus knows what you're going to have for breakfast tomorrow morning. Right? And the day after that. And he knows exactly what's going to happen 10 years from now in your life. And 100 years from now in the life of our, of our nation. And there's no question and there's no doubt and there's no just sort of guessing. He's not like a good chess player who's predicting the opponent's move. No, he, he is ruling the entire chessboard. Think about what this knowledge should do for you. You're sitting here today, and there's hypocrisy and hidden sin in your life, and nobody else in the room really knows who you are. But King Jesus does. He knows the hidden thoughts of every heart. He knows those things that you would tremble if anyone else knew. And one day, the Bible says that every secret thing will be brought into judgment before the king. You're not going to be able to hide from him. Better to confess now and to come into the light now than to be exposed on judgment day to the danger of your soul. But there's also an encouragement here. If Jesus knows the future and all things infallibly because he's the king, here you are as a saint and you're going through a hard time in your life. And you're like, people sort of generally know, but they don't really know. You feel so isolated and lonely. You're like, nobody really understands By the way, it's not really a helpful thing to just come along to someone who's suffering and be like, oh, I understand, I've been through the same thing, and it's exactly the same, because no two suffering situations are identical. I get what we're trying to say. We're trying to empathize and to sympathize, but sometimes what we do is try to downplay other people's suffering and their pain. But guess what? Jesus really does understand. He really was touched with, is touched with the feelings of our infirmities because he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. What comfort, beloved, to know Our sovereign king, who's working his plan, has perfect and total knowledge. But what I want to zero in on is this whole thing with getting the donkey in verse 30. Go into the village. The entering in, you'll find a colt tied, whereon yet never a man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. What's the deal with this colt? We find out in the other gospel accounts it is a donkey. It's because this is a direct fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, it said Israel's king would one day come in riding Okay, not on a stallion, not on a big chariot. The Romans would roll into Rome. They would come into Rome celebrating a triumph, and they would have these big chariots and these parades and all the slaves and all of the plunder from war. He doesn't do that. He comes in riding on this, this humble beast of burden. And he's riding an unridden animal. Why is that significant? Well, for one thing, it shows that he's Lord of creation. Um, if any of us decided to get on a horse that's never been ridden before, uh, you'll, you'll have a really wonderful encounter with the ground, right? Like, you might be the best horseman in the room, and I'm no horseman, but I, 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 I know enough to know if you try to get on a donkey, a horse, without, like, it's never been ridden never, before, we're going to get thrown off. Jesus masters creation. But there's something else going on. In the Old Testament, when there is sacred duty to be done, and we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, or bring the Ark of the Covenant back from the enemies of God, They would get an animal that's never been used for anything else to say, this is such a sacred event, we can't just get an animal from common, ordinary, everyday use. Jesus, by doing this, is saying, hey, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, here I am, the very presence of God, riding on this unridden animal. Nobody gets to ride the king's horse, except the king. He's saying, I am the king. Just before David died, there was an attempted coup against him, a guy named Adonijah, one of his kids. And there's a sort of conspiracy. Let's get Adonijah on the throne. Well, David had already decided it's going to be Solomon. And so uh, Bathsheba and others come to David saying, okay, David, do you know Adonijah's reigning, Adonijah's ruling? Said, That's not what I wanted. Solomon's supposed to be the guy. So in 1 Kings chapter 1, David says, we want to make sure everybody knows Solomon is the appointed heir. So he, what does he say? He says, put Solomon where? On my donkey. And anoint him with oil at Gihon Springs and announce him as king. By saying, he's riding my donkey, say, he's the king. So there's a whole bunch of Old Testament backdrop to this to say, 
hey, the, the, the donkey, the symbol of the king's authority and the king's rule. We've got this prophecy in Zechariah 500 years before that the promised king, the returning king. By the way, Zechariah was given at a time when there was no king during the exile, during the, the return. And Jesus is coming along and saying, hey, just like David and Solomon, here I am. Just like the prophecy of Zechariah, here I am. I am the king. I am fulfilling a divine plan. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey is not just a practical necessity. He's walked all the way from Galilee. The last two miles on foot are not going to kill him. This is a deliberate signaling. This is like a big billboard saying, king. He might as well show up in Air Force One, right? That's kind of the, how this would have communicated, except unlike Air Force One, this is a symbol of humility. You see, the perfect king, the one who fulfills God's plan, comes in humility, not in hubris. And the same is true for you and me. Legitimate authority, if you're having to tell people, by the way, I'm in charge, by the way, I'm mom, I'm dad, you know, by the way, I'm the, pa- I'm, I'm, I'm the one in charge here, at that point, you're probably not. If you're having to remind people you are, you, you, you demonstrate the validity and legitimacy of authority, yes, God has put me in this position, but it's the, the humble leadership that gives it validity in people's eyes. Unlike human rulers, the true king delivers on his promises in every single one of them. There's not going to be any good word that God has spoken that will be left unfulfilled. No promise that will be left hanging. When all of human history is done, when the king comes back the second time, all of God's promises will be fulfilled and you can take it to the bank. Don't put your hopes, do not put your hopes, beloved, in any human leader. They will let you down. Yes, we should respect human authority. It's ordained by God. But don't put your hopes in it. Don't put your trust. Don't put all your eggs in a basket that it will surely be dropped. He fulfills his word. I want to give you a second characteristic of the king that shows he's the true, the better king, the one who's worthy of all of our worship and adulation. Okay, we see his plan. He fulfills God's plan. He's got all the power, the sovereignty, the knowledge to do it. But now we come along to the triumphal part of the triumphal entry. We see that the true king is praised by his people. Verse 35, they brought him, they brought the donkey to Jesus, and they cast their garments on on the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as they went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now, at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. See this praise that is being offered to the king. They're recognizing, they understand what's going on, like, hey, this is the Zacharias stuff. This, he really is the Messiah. He really is the promised king. So they've got the prophetic donkey in place. This triumphal procession gets underway, and it's initially made up of Jesus and his disciples. Remember, it's Passover. The whole nation is converging on Jerusalem. So there's thousands of Passover pilgrims, and you know, this is springtime. It's beautiful. Everyone's sort of joining this procession. We get, the, we get the impression that people are coming out of the city to join the impression, sort of usher him in, bring the king in to the, to the royal city. What I want to draw your attention to is the fact that they are deliberately doing things that say, we think you're the king. It doesn't say that Jesus gets on the donkey. It says they set him on the donkey, sort of like, you're the king. We're going to lift you up and gently place you on the donkey. We're getting the door for you. They make a little saddle, a makeshift saddle out of their outer garments, which, by the way, you're like, hey, not a big deal. Like, hey, you can go to Walmart, buy some shirts. But if you're living in the ancient world, your outer coat, your outer garment is one of the most expensive things that you own. You might just own one, maybe two uh, outer garments that you would wear, and then under it there would be some kind of a tunic that they would wear. To take that off and to say, I'm going to throw that down in the path of the king is to say, all of my possessions, symbolically, I'm laying at the feet of the king. That's what that would signal in the ancient world. It's not just a, oh, we don't want him to get his feet dirty, but it's to say, you have the right to walk all over me. You have the right to own, take everything that is mine. Once again, the Old Testament, again, there's so much of the Old Testament that, is, uh, anticipate, that it anticipates this. Jehu is anointed king, um, and he's really given a job to clean up house in the northern kingdom in Samaria. And he comes to power in sort of some uh, violent, uh, violent setting. But when he becomes king in 2 Kings 9, verse 13, all the people immediately take off their coats and they, they put them on the steps to say, we recognize you as king, we're rolling out the red carpet, so to speak. 
It suggests, as one commentator put it, willingness to let a ruler trample on one's own property. See, we could offer really cheap praise and cheap worship to Jesus. Praise, worship that costs us very little. It doesn't really cost any of us to be here today. Maybe you're like, oh, I could have worked. But generally speaking, it's not really costing us much to come and sing some hymns at church and then go home. We're going to sing a hymn at the end of the service, I Surrender All. It's an easy hymn to lie your way through. I surrender all where you're really thinking, no, I'm, well, I'm still going to spend my money the way I want to spend it. I'm going to still sp- use my budget the way that I want to use it. I'm still going to hold on to the sin that I don't want Jesus to have control over. Genuine praise that's offered to Jesus doesn't simply praise him with the lips. praises him with the heart to say, if you're the king, then all that I am is yours. All that I am is yours. This, is, this, this praise that the people offer symbolically is sacrificial praise. Maybe this is why in Hebrews chapter 13, the writer of Hebrews, probably Paul, but I don't know who, who wrote it. Whoever wrote it says, you know, we're going to offer to him the sacrifice of praise, sacrifice of thanksgiving, even the fruit of our lips. What we offer in praise to God should be sacrificial. Not that we slaughter an animal, but we proclaim praise and worship to him. I want you to notice this, how eagerly and freely and willingly the people do this. Verse 37, and when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, so he kind of comes over the crest of the hill, the whole city is sort of sprawled out before his feet, as it were. The whole multitude of the disciples, these are people who believe and follow and love Jesus, began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So they're looking back over the last several years they've been with Jesus, the miracles. Lazarus getting raised from the dead. Just earlier in the chapter, Bartimaeus, right, having sight restored to him. All the miracles that he's done, they're looking back at me like, wow, this man is really the king. And they begin to celebrate and they begin to praise. They began to rejoice and to praise God. This is they're praising him joyfully would be another way to render this. Joyful, free. You know, there's one attitude you really can't manufacture, and that is joy. You can put a fake smile on your face. You know, like the, the school pictures where you're like, really not happy, but I'm just going to make this weird toothy grin. And real joy in the heart is not manufactured. It's not something that you just sort of coerced into really feeling joy. Joy comes when we see the object of our joy as infinitely worthy. This joy comes from a place of, this one's the king, and we're delighted to, 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 to know him and to worship him and to follow him. We've seen the miracles that he's done. I believe you know, people like Bartimaeus are here. Being like, he opened my eyes. I used to be blind, but now I see. And I just can't get over the fact. Joyful praise. Think about how this validates the rule of the king. He's not coming along and being like, you better worship me or else. No, praise, the, the, the validation of the praise and the adulation of his people. It's to say, this is a, a king whose rule is legitimate. This is a king whose rule is righteous. Do you come to church with joy in your heart? We sang some incredible songs today. Be thou exalted forever and ever. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I get not of us are as expressive as other people are, right? Like, not everyone has to be an expressive sort of, uh, you know, extroverted type of person. But if you can come to church and just kind of sing, move your lips but not move your heart, Something is profoundly wrong. We, we, we ought to be celebrating and rejoicing, not in a happy, clappy kind of, let's have a big party kind of way, but in a serious joy kind of way. That's what the Bible presents, a serious, reverent joy. Not a, we all going to stand here, we're going to light some candles and feel miserable, but genuine joy, serious joy, because we get the weight of who our king is. Now, verse 38, we come along, we look at this, this portrait of praise. It's, it's joyful, it's sacrificial. But verse 38, they're not just making something up here. Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. They are now quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. Psalm 118, verse 26 was originally used of the Davidic kings. They're coming into the temple in Jerusalem to worship, and they would say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It originally applied to the king, like, here's the king, he's coming to worship. And we're going to just celebrate the fact that here comes the king to worship. 
Over time, Psalm 118 began to be used of all sort of Passover pilgrims. As they came to the city of Jerusalem, it would be said, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, coming to the city to worship and to celebrate the Passover. Notice they add something. Originally, the text said, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice what they say. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They fill in that detail to be explicit. Back to the original context of Psalm 118. Blessed is the king. Now, that word's not originally in Psalm 118, but it's certainly there in the context. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The praise that they offer is not just something they came up with, but something that was in the word of God itself. I think there's something instructive there. When we as God's people gather to worship the king, it's not up to us to come up with things like how should we worship him. You realize the king has actually told us how he wants to be worshipped? He doesn't say, all right, just worship me any old way will do. No, he tells us in his word what we are to do. We are to sing and we are to pray and we are to read his word and to declare his word and to celebrate the ordinances. That's what we're meant to do when we gather to worship. And the Bible should saturate our praise. I love hymns that are chock full of biblical allusions. You are the Christ, son of the living God, straight from Scripture. We're, we're marching to Zion. You can pull scriptural allusions from that. If you pulled that hymn out today and you got your Bible out and you looked for it, you would find biblical allusions in that. It's not just you know, God's cool, God's great, and like let's throw some of our own personal experience in there, but it's rooted in the Bible. Biblical praise. Now they continue on in verse 38. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Luke is adding something here that none of the other gospel writers... By the way, all four gospel writers include this event. It's that important. There's plenty of things that John does not include that Luke does, but all of them include this event. But Luke alone includes that phrase. It should remind you of something. When Jesus came into the world, the angels said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So the angels at his birth are declaring peace on earth. Now at the triumphal entry, men on earth are declaring peace in heaven. Now, now what does that mean? Like, in what sense is there peace in, in heaven? What's going on there? Revelation 7.10 has a similar kind of structure. It says, salvation to our God. Think about that. Like, does God need saving? No. It's not that we're giving salvation to God or giving peace to God. Rather, it is, it is a way of saying peace is the possession of heaven. Salvation is the possession of heaven. God is the one who sets the terms of peace. God is the one who sends an emissary to, to initiate peace. God is the one who possesses it. So to say, peace in heaven, glory in the highest, to say, peace and glory belong to God. If this is a moment where the king has come to establish peace. He comes as the king, and he comes as the emissary, and as the ambassador declaring peace. Maybe you're here today, and you realize there is, there's not much peace. Maybe internal peace is just turmoil, chaos in your heart. Just unsettled all the time, anxious all the time. And maybe that internal peace is that way because there's not, things are not right between you and your creator. You go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sin. And it ruptures their relationship with God. It brings hostility to their relationship with God where they're, they're running and hiding from him. But it also brings hostility in their relationships with each other. Remember what Adam does? He's like, God, it's Eve's fault, right? Like the woman you gave me, it's sort of your fault as well, but it's Eve's fault. So there's now hostility that comes in the relationships between, between sinners, and there's also hostility that Adam begins to experience in a relationship with himself. That's what sin does. By wrecking our relationship with God, it wrecks our relationships with other people and wrecks our relationship even with ourselves where there's turmoil and chaos and anxiety and pressure and hostility in every relationship. Jesus comes to restore peace. And not in a superficial, like, hippie peace kind of way. Peace, man. Not, 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 no, not in a... We're going to just sort of patch together a ceasefire kind of way. He comes to reconcile God and sinners together. How? Through forgiveness, through his work on the cross. So Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.20 says that Jesus has made peace through the blood of his cross. Taking parties that were at enmity... God and sinners, by the way, if you are a sinner, which, by the way, all of us are, 
It's not that you and God are chill and on good terms. It's not like he's the big man upstairs you need to check in with every now now and again. God is actually the most terrifying, fearful enemy you could imagine. He's holy and you're not. And sin cannot abide in the presence of God. Paper airplanes cannot fly through the sun. Mosquitoes cannot go through Niagara Falls. Sinners cannot enter the presence of a holy God. That's terrifying. There is active hostility from the sinner towards God. You don't want God to rule over you. And from God to the sinner, wrath being built up and stored for the day of judgment. But Jesus, through his death on the cross, reconciles sinners. He absorbs the wrath that God has for sinners, and he takes the guilt and the sin and the shame that sinners have, and he carries it to the depths of the sea. He pays the penalty. His blood washes it away. And I'm standing here today as an ambassador, standing as if Jesus were standing here saying, be reconciled to God. I beg you to be reconciled to God, to be made right with your creator through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what an ambassador does, saying, here's the terms of peace. Will you receive them? Come back to our text. Everyone's celebrating, they're praising. But we know this well enough to know not everybody is getting this. There's going to be some Pharisees that pop up in verse 39, verse 40. Pharisees from among the multitude said, Master, rebuke thy disciples. They don't really like this. We understand how crowds work. There are genuine disciples here who understand Jesus as king, and there's plenty of other people who are like, hey, this is really awesome. We've always wanted to get rid of the Romans and see a return of the Davidic kingship. Jesus is our guy. And so they take Jesus as kind of a blank canvas and then fill that in with their own portrait of what they think the king should be. Jesus, hey, if he could raise the dead, do miracles, he'd be a great guy to come in and get rid of the Romans and establish the kingdom and make Israel great again. That's sort of what they want. And so they're praising him, but not as the servant king that he really is. They're praising him not as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. They're praising him because they're like, hey, Jesus would be a really good way to get what we want. Beloved, there's a real danger that we love and trust Jesus because of what he can do for us. See, man, there's some real problems in my life. I'm dealing with some things. Maybe Jesus will make it better. I'll come to Jesus. He'll be kind of a band-aid on my problems. My marriage is struggling. Maybe Jesus can fix that. I'm depressed. Maybe Jesus can fix that. I'm not doing well in my job. Maybe Jesus can fix that. If you're doing that, if you're coming to Jesus in that way, let me say very clearly, you are not trusting in the Jesus of the Bible. If that's the Jesus you are trusting in, you are lost in your sins. We don't get to come to Jesus as sort of an empty vessel for us to fill with our own dreams and visions. Jesus is not a means to our ends. I get Jesus so I can really get what I want. You know what that means? The thing that you really want is the God that you're actually worshiping. You say, I'll I'll trust Jesus so I can be healthy and successful. Health and success is the God that you're really trusting in, and you are not converted. You're trusting in a false Jesus. And listen, if you come to Jesus thinking he's going to make your life better, Guess what happens? He doesn't actually promise to do that. He says, take up the cross, follow me. There's going to be hardship, there's going to be persecution, there's going to be suffering. How many people do you know who have walked out of church and have been like, I'm done with Christianity because Jesus didn't deliver what they thought he should have delivered? Because they were laying hold on promises that Jesus never gave. He never promised to make our lives better. He's not here to give us sort of a better life now and then we go to heaven. He's here to rescue us from our sins. So is the Jesus you're trusting in the one who rescues you from your sins or the one who is sort of just a way to improve your life? The people here, many of the people here, not all of them, but many of the people here on the triumphal entry saw Jesus as a way to get what they really wanted rather than what he really wanted. You come to Jesus for his own sake. You come to Jesus not, I'll get Jesus and then good, he'll make my life better. You come to Jesus and you say, I'm coming to Jesus so I can have Jesus. Right? That's what it's all about. I want Jesus for Jesus' own sake because I I need him and I love him and I'm going to follow him. That's saving faith. So there's genuine praise here, but there's also misguided praise here. I think it's a bit of a stretch to say all these same people were saying crucify him a few days later. That's sort of good preaching but bad exegesis. I think that's a different crowd. But there's probably some overlap. Some people who are really excited on Monday or on Sunday who are going to be really upset on Thursday. And many who would be disillusioned by Saturday when Jesus' kingship didn't pan out the way that they thought it would. 
So here's my point. The true king is not some illegitimate tyrant foisted on people. For those whose hearts have been changed, those whose eyes are open, he is more beautiful and more glorious than any other king could be. But I'm going to come to a third and final characteristic of the true king that shows his kingship to be genuine. Shows his kingship to be better, infinitely better than anything else. We see the king's pain. So his plan, he actually carries out his promises, his praise. He's legitimate. He's worthy of our worship and our adulation. But finally, in his pain, we see a king who actually weeps over his enemies. So the Pharisees come along. They reject him in verse 39. Master, rebuke thy disciples. That's to say, all this business of being the the king who comes in the name of the Lord, all this stuff's a little overblown, Jesus. Like, that's not really true. Uh, Did you notice something in verse 39? They come and they say to him, Master, okay, that word there, didaskalos, teacher. The Pharisees have no problem affirming Jesus as a teacher, but they have a big problem affirming him as king. There's a lot of people who want to do that with Jesus. Hey, he's a great teacher. I, I, I remember talking to one of my cousins one time in Australia. He's like, hey, I'm an atheist, but I also think Jesus had the best ethic that any teacher has ever given. But that's not what Jesus is claiming to be. He does not claim merely to be a teacher. He claims to be king and lord of all. So the Pharisees, they're like, we don't like this stuff. I think really what's going on here in John chapter 12, or John chapter 11, after Lazarus is raised from the dead, they're like, man, the whole world's going after him. And the Romans are going to catch wind of this. They're going to think it's another rebellion. And then they're going to come and take away the city in our place. They're afraid of losing their own authority, their own control. And so Jesus has got to go. It's either going to be them or it's going to be Jesus. And Jesus' response is, okay, if these should hold their peace, the very stones would cry out. Like, guys, this is a moment where God is entering, the creator is coming into his creation. If these people wouldn't worship him, the creation will worship him. There's a little bit of an allusion here to, I believe it's the book of Habakkuk, where the stones will cry out in judgment. Uh, Psalm 95, 96 talks about when the king comes, the creation, the trees, and all creation will celebrate Isaiah 55. The trees of the field will clap their hands. Uh, we get in, in, in Romans chapter 8, creation one day is going to be liberated from its bondage. Jesus is simply saying this. This is so painfully obvious that the king is here. People have to recognize that the rocks are going to cry out. The rocks will break out into singing. And here we have the one allusion in the Bible to rock music. Um, so that, that was a joke. You can laugh at that. I, that's a hard joke. So um, don't stone me for that one. <laughs> Jesus is saying silence in this moment is impossible because the king has come into his kingdom. The creator has come to his creation. And so this now sets off the chain of events that by Thursday, just days later, will result in the whole Sanhedrin condemning Jesus to die. He'll be turned over to the Romans. He'll be executed. So that sets up the stage for verse 41. Verses 41 to 44 are recorded in no other gospel account except this one. The other gospel accounts, Jesus goes into the, into the city, into the temple. And when he was come near, again, the, the, the view from the Mount of Olives, you can see the whole city of Jerusalem. You can see the temple glistening in the sun. If it's in the morning, which it probably is, sun is behind him. The whole city is illuminated before him. He beheld the city and wept over it. And this is not just... Misty-eyed, oh, it's so good to be at Jerusalem. This is weeping and wailing, audible crying. It's one of only two places in the gospel where Jesus is said to weep. Here and at Lazarus' tomb. Why is he weeping? If you had known, if even you had known in this your day the things for your peace. And then he stops. If you had known all the things I'm about to say wouldn't happen. Second class conditional, you, you didn't know. If you had known, but you haven't, you didn't really grasp the things for thy peace. There's that word peace again. The peace, the reconciliation between God and sinners. So you didn't know. Now, it wasn't because the information wasn't out there. It's because they were spiritually blind to it. They, would, they refused it. They refused to repent and to receive Jesus as their king. And so here's Jesus coming in. Isn't this jarring? Praising, yeah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus weeping and sobbing of judgment's going to fall on the city. He doesn't come as the warrior king, but as the weeping king. It's quite a jarring shift from verse 39 and 40 to verse 41. 
He knows the fate that's going to come on the city. He knows that they will largely reject him as king. Not everyone. There's disciples. There's a remnant that will believe. But he knows exactly what is going to happen as a result. Sort of with the eyes of prophecy, he could see the beloved city glistening with blood. He could see its walls torn down in a smoldering heap. And here's the thing. As God... This was the judgment that God ordained. The Romans would not have swept into the city in A.D. 70. This is going to be about 40 years later, unless God had ordained it. Here's Jesus, who is God, and is human, weeping over the event that he ordained as God. Incredible. You say, yes, this is what's going to happen. The judgment's going to come, and yet I'm going to weep over that judgment. So here's the lament in verse 42. If only you had known... The name Jerusalem has embedded in it Salem, Shalom, peace. Some sense that word peace is implied in the name. One writer says this, The city whose very name is associated with peace fails to recognize what makes for its own peace, fails to recognize the bearer of heaven's peace, fails to recognize its king of peace. Only you had known. He says, now, if only you had known, but you didn't. Notice what verse 42, but now they're hid from your eyes. God, in an act of judgment on Israel, hardens their hearts and blinds their eyes, confirming them in their state of rejection against him. Romans 11, 7 to 10, Paul will talk about that, how Israel in judgment has been blinded by God. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, the most quoted verse in the Old Testament is about Israel being judicially hardened by God because of their rejection. And yet he longs for them. We get verses like Isaiah 48, verse 18. Oh, that you had kept my ways. Psalm 81, verse 13. Deuteronomy 5, 29. The longing of God's heart for people to bow to him in repentance and faith. And man's steadfast refusal. If we're going to be like Jesus, we need to have a similar heart towards the lost. David felt that in Psalm one. 19, verse 136, my eyes weep for those who don't know your law. David, or Paul rather, in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, is my heart's desire for Israel is they might be saved. I could wish myself accursed from Christ if my people could be saved. How do you look at people around you, the world around you? It's easy to look at the world around us and be angry and be outraged. That's easy. Anybody can have a Fox News host and be mad about everything. But it takes a saint who knows the heart of God to be moved with grief and sorrow, knowing that the people who are living contrary to God's word will face eternity in hell. And that ought to move our hearts. It ought to move our lips to speak. So this prophecy in verses 43 and 44 very vividly predicts what would come in A.D. 70. The Romans would come. There would be this rebellion that the people would start against Rome. The Romans would come. Initially, they built a wooden palisade around the city to hem the people in. So verse 43, For the day shall come that thy enemies shall cast a trench about thee. The word trench could be a palisade, so they built that. Josephus tells us the Jewish people came out and then burnt it. It was made out of wood. So what do they do then? They then, they then build an actual sort of dirt wall around the city to keep anybody from coming or going. So verse 43 says, and they shall compass thee round and keep thee in on every side. The idea is sort of a a noose that is tightening around the city that is besieged. Exactly what happened in A.D. 70 when the Romans came and destroyed the city. Verse 44, and they shall lay thee even with the ground. They will raise the city to the ground and thy children within thee. Men, women, children slaughtered. That's eventually what happened. They took the city piece by piece with absolutely horrific violence. I don't think we can even begin to fathom. We understand wars today, you know, with explosions, but imagine everyone is being killed with swords, bleeding out in the streets. Josephus describes this. I'm going to mention this because Jesus is making a prophecy that's fulfilled perfectly. Josephus says, while the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground, just like Jesus said, leaving only the loftiest of the towers and a portion of the wall and closing the city on the west. That's the the wailing wall that you can go to today. 
All the rest of the wall that surrounded the city was so completely razed to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no reason to believe that the city had ever been inhabited. Jesus saw all of that. Now, why did it happen? Verse 44 says, Because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation, God has shown up, and you missed it. So the opportunity is now. Your Creator's standing in your presence, and you're rejecting Him. Because of that, this judgment's going to fall. Jesus' own death resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem, in a sense. Now, here's the point. Jesus, unlike any human king, takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Yes, his holiness demands it. Yes, his justice will carry it out. And yes, the judgment of the wicked will glorify God. But in some sense, God in his compassion and mercy and love and grace grieves over the death of the wicked. It's not that he's reluctant to uphold his holiness and is forced to do it, but he loves the lost. Even those who are not among his elect people, he loves them. And so should we. The true king loves even his enemies. He doesn't have it out for them. He's not out there just being like, let me just give these guys. No, 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 no. Grief, sorrow, tears. That's the true king. That's what he looks like. There's no king, no president, no prime minister who is like King Jesus. No one who has the power to make a plan and perfectly carry it out from eternity past to eternity future. That is our king. There's no king who inhabits heaven's praises and is loved and adored by his people world over. You can go to just about any nation on the planet today, and there are people who are praising the name of King Jesus. There's no other king like that who is worshipped and loved by people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. By the way, missions exist because worship does not, John Piper has said. Love that statement. And there's no king who weeps over the fate of his enemies. So is he your king today? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus in faith? Or are you trusting and sort of hoping, just through my good works, through my efforts, I can make it? He's king like no other. Will you love him? Will you worship him? Oh, Father, we bow to you in awe and adoration.